Let us remain in worship this morning by opening God's Word to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 26, through chapter 25, verse 12. Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 26, through chapter 25, verse 12. Paul is making his way to Rome, as you know. He escaped, he escaped one attempt against his life in Jerusalem. And now he is about 100 miles north of Jerusalem, getting closer to Rome in a province called Caesarea. And he's now under custody under the Roman governor, Felix. And so here we find Paul in Caesarea in a Roman prison cell. And so we begin in chapter 24, verse 20. Six. At the same time, he, Felix, hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province... He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning on ambush, an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. Verse 5. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against them. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against Paul that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer, and I have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answer to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall Go. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Interesting story, isn't it? My, my question every Monday is, how do I preach this? <laughs> All right. How do I preach this? Well, on Thursday of last week, I had the blessing of spending a little bit of time with uh, our preschool kids uh, during their chapel service, which we do right here. And before I got up to speak on the topic that had been assigned to me, Kevin led the children in a few worship songs. One of these was the well-known hymn titled, Trust and Obey. You know it. 
It is a very simple song, isn't it? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be, what, happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Simple, isn't it? Simple. Those two words, trust and obey, are easy enough for a little child to learn and remember and yet profound enough for a seasoned Christian to never truly master in his life. Trust and obey. Those two words can be simple enough for a little one to feel comfortable, but deep enough for a grown believer to take a full dive and never reach bottom. Trust and obey, simple yet so very profound. Why do I bring those two words up right now? Because I believe that these two words, trust and obey, when put together, form the essence of what it means to be steadfast. Steadfast. To be steadfast is to trust and obey for extended periods of time. Or to be even more strongly, to put it even more strongly, to be steadfast is to trust and obey in all circumstances as a way of life. To be steadfast is to trust and obey in all circumstances as a way of life. As I said, simple enough for a child to understand, but deep enough for grown adults to never fully master in their lives. And, what, and that's precisely what we see in Paul. He was a steadfast man. But steadfastness doesn't just happen, unfortunately. That would be nice, right? You wake up one day and you are steadfast. But that doesn't happen. There is an order of things. Steadfastness is, in fact, the last thing on a series of other things. Steadfastness, this trusting and obeying the Lord constantly only happens as our faith is tested through trials of various kinds, just as James says. Paul knew steadfastness because he knew what? Trials. Trials. Paul knew steadfastness because his faith was constantly tested. And that's the order of things. In the words of James, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet what? Trials of what kind? Various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. Steadfastness is the product of other things. Steadfastness comes as a result of something else. You cannot begin the process of learning to trust and obey the Lord in all circumstances as a way of life apart from that which tests your faith. Steadfastness is the product of testing. If you lift weights consistently... You can expect to be able to lift more and more as the muscles are put under stress. The greater and the more consistent the stress on the muscle, the larger its capacity to endure more and more. Likewise, faith is tested uh, and it is put under stress so that it enlarges its capacity to continue trusting and continue obeying the Lord. 
In other words, faith is tested so that we might become steadfast. So let me ask you a question. You know where this is going, right? Do you want to know steadfastness in your life? For those of you who said yes, mentally, let me ask you a follow-up question. Do you know what you're asking for? Do you know what you're asking for? When you pray, Lord, make me steadfast, do you know that alongside that request often comes trials, testing, difficulties, and afflictions? Only then can you know steadfastness. Paul was an example of steadfastness because he knew the testing of his faith through various trials. And by steadfast, I mean that Paul remained not only trusting in Christ, but also obeying him. Steadfastness, by necessity then, involves both. Trusting in Jesus as Lord who is sovereign, but also obeying Jesus as a Lord who is worthy. If you stop trusting and or obeying the Lord, then you are not being steadfast. Paul did not give in to fear precisely because he trusted the Lord, nor did Paul give in to sin precisely because he obeyed Jesus. In short, Paul remained steadfast under trial. So let me ask you again, do you want to know steadfastness in your own life? What we see in our passage is the steadfastness of Paul expressed under two different forms of trials. Now, we could say a whole lot more. We could spend much more time in this, but I have just selected two. It is all one story, of course, but there are at least two different forms of afflictions that are assaulting Paul, or better yet, we see two forms of afflictions that are testing Paul's faith in the Lord. And this, by the way, is what I love about the Bible. It is so very real. It is so very real. It is God-given to us, inspired by God, but the Bible is thoroughly human. Thoroughly human. Paul didn't walk on a cloud above trials, above tribulations, above afflictions. If anything, he knew afflictions better than most. What I love about the Bible, and in particular about the book of Acts and the testimony of Paul, is what they clearly communicate to every single one of us who label ourselves Christians. And it is this. Christianity is not about escaping this world and its problems. It's not about that. Rather, it is about learning to live in this world, trusting and obeying the one who is faithful under all circumstances. Paul wasn't a monk living his faith in isolation somewhere. He lived his faith publicly. He loved to the point of pain. And in all of it, he remained steadfast. Paul shows us that it is possible to be steadfast, to trust and to obey the Lord under the severest of trials the most painful of circumstances, and the most trying of moments. Now look now with me at the first thing we learn from the Apostle Paul this morning. He was steadfast under the trial 
of prolonged waiting. Prolonged waiting. Have you ever had to wait for the Lord? Some of you are waiting right now. Two years in prison. Now that's waiting. Two years in prison. Verse 26. At the same time, he, Felix, hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. Two years in prison, I don't know about you, but sounds like a long time. Sounds like a very long time, especially in light of what Paul had heard out of the mouth of Jesus himself back in Jerusalem. Remember what Jesus said? In chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord Jesus has said to Paul, and I paraphrase, Paul, you will make it to Rome. That's what Jesus said to Paul. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you will also in Rome. What more guarantees could Paul need? If Jesus says it, it's done. It's done. Paul was now in the province called Caesarea. So technically speaking, Paul was getting closer to Rome. But still, over two years had elapsed between the words of Jesus to Paul in Jerusalem and the events of Acts 25 in Caesarea. Two years. Don't you think that at some point during his stay in this Roman prison, he wondered about what was going on? Didn't the Lord say I would make it to Rome? Did I completely misunderstand what he said? Why am I spending all this time locked up in Caesarea when I should have been on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea by now? As one writer honestly put it, and I quote, Paul knew that a belief in providence always constituted a call to patience. But even so, this was getting ridiculous, end quote. Time, when it goes by right before your eyes, especially in very uncomfortable situations, can seem to go to waste sometimes. Think about how easy it would have been for Paul to give in to despair. Days became weeks. Weeks became months. Months became one year, and one year became two. Nothing can test your faith like having to wait, especially when you don't have a clear understanding of what's really going on on the outside. Paul knew what the Lord had said. He heard the words with his own ears. Paul, you will make it to Rome. But at some point, after extended periods of time, what we do is that we begin to try to harmonize things, don't we? How do the words of Jesus and the events that I'm living through fit together? Jesus said, I would make it to Rome. Two years later, I'm still stuck at Caesarea. How does that work? Have you ever asked yourself that question with respect to seasons of prolonged, uncomfortable waiting in your life? Have you ever had to wait on the Lord for longer than anticipated? Imagine having to do that from a prison cell for two long years. But even more interesting than the waiting period itself, long as it was, is what we see happening as Paul waits. Have you noticed what he does 
while he waits. What did Paul do during this trying, long, drawn-out, somewhat senseless 24 months of waiting in prison? What did he do? Well, he did what any of us would have done under those extreme circumstances, of course. He shared the gospel with the governor who put him in prison, Felix. That's what we would all do, right? In prison. For Felix, Paul was somewhat of an enigma and possibly an ATM machine. Paul was a a man who, through both his message and his life, brought conviction upon Felix. As we saw in chapter 24, verse 25, Felix became alarmed with Paul's message of righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. But Felix insisted on talking to Paul often because he wanted what? He wanted a bribe. He wanted a bribe, according to verse 25. So what did Paul do during this prolonged, seemingly senseless waiting season of his life? He loved his enemy. He loved his enemy. As I have told you before, you know what Christianity is? You know what Christians are? Are a new creation in Christ who lived by a different set of rules. Paul was showing Felix, there's a new governor in town. There's a new king in town. His name is Jesus, and he's changing humanity. He's changing the whole world. So Paul, in this time of long, prolonged waiting, he loved his enemy. He did not give in to despair or complaining. Paul remained steadfast under the trial of extended waiting. Now, what were some of the temptations for Paul? Well, as we already said, despair or complaining would have been temptations. I know it would have been for me after two years, despair, complaining. But even more possible was the temptation to give into what Felix wanted, a bribe to set him free. Paul, if you only give Felix a little bit of money, which you can probably get from somewhere, your trial would end. An opportunity arose for Paul to get out of his affliction to end this prolonged waiting. But it was a sinful opportunity. It was a sinful opportunity. God hates bribes. God hates bribes. Felix wanted what the book of Proverbs calls unjust gain. In Proverbs 15, 27. And in the same verse... Proverbs says, but he who hates bribes will live. Now, what's the lesson for us that we can learn for Paul's steadfastness under prolonged waiting? Here's the lesson. That it is better to remain in waiting. It is better to remain in waiting, however uncomfortable the circumstances, than to sin our way out of it. Important lesson. It is better to remain in waiting, however uncomfortable the circumstances, than to sin our way out of them. Extended waiting periods can be a drain on us. But whatever you do, don't try to sin your way out of uncomfortable trying times. Imagine what a contradiction it would have been for Paul to speak to Felix Felix, about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment to then give in to bribery. 
not an option for Paul. As I have said before, for Paul, faith in Christ wasn't just a separate compartment of his life that didn't meddle with other areas of his life. Instead, Christ for Paul was his life, and it meant both trusting Christ and obeying Christ in all circumstances as a way of life, even in a cold prison cell during prolonged waiting seasons. Faith in Christ meant for Paul and trusting himself to Jesus and saying no to sin in the process. Trust and obey. That's to be steadfast. And secondly, we see Paul steadfast under the trial of unfair treatment. Unfair treatment. He was left to rot and he was falsely accused. Look once again, verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded, succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now consider chapter 25, verse 7. The Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around Paul, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Imagine the blow to Paul. Paul shared the gospel with his enemy for two years, showing him the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul showed respect. Paul was cordial. Paul was kind. Paul didn't complain. He was probably the best prisoner. Paul offered Felix Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. Paul spoke to Felix about hope in the Lord. But to add sorrow upon sorrow, when Felix could have done the right thing, he slapped Paul in the face even more. He left Paul to rot in prison. Why? To do the Jews a favor, said the Bible. Imagine the humiliation of someone using you and your misery to please those who already hate you. What level of indifference. This was, of course, a political move for Festus or for Felix. For Felix. By now, in the story, a new emperor had risen to power in Rome, namely Nero. So Felix wanted to leave his post as governor in good terms with those who had any degree of influence in society. And the Jews, but in particular the Pharisees and the Sadducees, had that influence in varying degrees. Paul, on the other hand, what did he have? He had nothing. For Felix, Paul was just a troublemaker, not worth risking his political career for. Why give Paul his freedom when that would make the Jews mad, potentially hurting his political career? Keep him locked up. That way you leave in good terms with those who could make a difference in the long run. Well, what about Paul? Well, who cares? Who cares? Humanly speaking, this must have felt horrible to the apostle Paul. He was human after all. He was left to rot in prison for the sake of someone else's political career and the pleasure of his enemies. But Jesus had said, Paul, you will make it to Rome. 
So Paul was probably thinking, Lord, this is not really how I envisioned going to Rome. I was hoping for a more direct flight with less bumps along the way. But as we all know, brothers and sisters, the Lord does work in what ways? Mysterious ways, doesn't he? From the beginning, this has been the case. God could have prevented the fall of Adam and Eve, yet he allowed it. God could have prevented his good world from being stained by the darkness of weakness, of wickedness, yet he allowed it. Likewise, God could have prevented Paul from all these trials, yet he allowed them in his life, all of them. Not only did the Lord allow two full years to go by that might have seemed somewhat, somewhat senseless, but after two years, Felix left him in prison. The Lord allowed it. And then when the new governor came, a man by the name of Festus, things didn't really get much better for Paul. Soon after assuming his role as governor to replace Felix, Festus went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. We don't know exactly why he went to Jerusalem. But while in Jerusalem, as we read, Festus interacted with the Jews there. And once again, the Jews tried their best to convince Festus to bring Paul back to Jerusalem to be tried. Why? Well, we read in verse 3 of chapter 25 that they wanted to ambush Paul and kill him. That's how fierce their hatred for Paul was. They didn't want to go give Paul a fair trial. They wanted to give him the death penalty, no questions asked. Now, in the Lord's providence, Festus refused to bring Paul to Jerusalem and left him instead in Caesarea to be tried. Paul's life, once again, was providentially spared. Now, I have addressed the reasons for this murderous hatred against Paul in past sermons, which you are welcome to listen to on our website. Not now, of course, not on your phone. <laughs> I hope that's clear. Now, the problem for Paul is that he was in a context full of political corruption. Festus, just like Felix before him, was all about political advancement. Having the favor of the Jews was a significant step in the right direction for any Roman politician. And this once again became a factor in the unfair treatment of Paul. Even though he did give Paul a hearing in Caesarea, Festus still wanted to earn the favor of the Jews. Things are not going well for Paul. So let us draw a few lessons from Paul by looking at his actions in verse 8. Having been left to rot in prison and having been falsely accused in verse 7 with very serious and false charges, including now a charge that he was somehow against the emperor himself. In verse 8, Paul presents his defense. Look at what he says. Paul argued in his defense neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Now, what's the lesson for us? I have, I have two. Here's the first lesson. A clear conscience is key to remaining steadfast under trial. A clear conscience is key to remaining steadfast under trial. When you look 
at those biblical characters that jump out of the page to you, especially given how they handled severe afflictions in their lives, such as Joseph and Job, what is it that they have in common? Well, they remained steadfast, meaning they trusted and obeyed the Lord under immense amounts of pressure because they kept a clear conscience. That's what they have in common. Hence, the words of James in James chapter 5, verse 11, where he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Even as his friends came and added to his grief, Job knew his life to be in the right with God. His conscience was clear. Likewise, Joseph had to endure massive amounts of suffering under the Egyptians, Egyptians precisely in order to keep a clear conscience. But that clear conscience is what kept him steadfast to the lustful and adulterous advances of Potiphar's wife. Joseph said these famous words, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph escaped the temptation and suffered the consequences. In the words of Paul, Joseph took pains to keep a clear conscience in his life. He, he took the unfair treatment rather than to wound his own conscience. Joseph, Job, and now here Paul in the book of Acts, they all teach us this all-important lesson. They all sought to live coram Deo. In the face of God, even when no one was looking, they kept a clear conscience. For Paul, this meant speaking the truth concerning Jesus to a hostile audience, even at great personal cost. He was unfairly treated for the sake of truth, but his conscience was clear, therefore he remained steadfast. Here's the second lesson that we learn from Paul, is that to be steadfast under trial is not the same as being passive or fatalistic. To be steadfast under trial is not the same as being passive or fatalistic. Let me try to explain what I mean. In verse 9, and you can read that with me over chapter 25, we read, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Once again, we see that Paul was standing up against not just the Jews, but against political greed. Festus wanted to keep the Jews happy. But Paul does something interesting. After Festus asked that question in verse 9, Paul says in verses 10 and 11, look at what he says. I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. What does appealing to Caesar mean? It means this. As a Roman citizen, Paul said, I know my rights. 
and my rights include taking my case all the way up to the highest court, the emperor himself. Now, that was a risky move for Paul. The emperor could have made matters worse for Paul, but Paul appealed to Caesar for two specific reasons, and you know this. First, Paul knew that death was waiting for him in Jerusalem. So going back there was basically walking into a death trap. Second, Paul is probably beginning to realize that this is his opportunity to actually make it all the way to Rome. This was a God-sent moment for Paul. So the lesson is essentially this. Knowing that the Lord is in control of all things and that he is sovereign doesn't mean we should not act when appropriate. As you can see, Paul wasn't just waiting for a miracle to take place and suddenly be transported to Rome. No, Paul trusted and obeyed the Lord, and he did so actively. Paul saw this as a window into the Lord's plan for him. So basically, Paul, here's your chance to make it to Rome. And Paul took it. Now, the, the Jews had been thoroughly prevented from killing Paul. We see this definitively at the end of verse 12, where Festus says to Paul, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Once a Roman citizen appealed to Caesar, it became a matter of law. The Jews were now helpless to harm Paul in any way. We learn from this that Paul didn't just resign himself to his fate as if he was a fatalist. When harm could be avoided, he avoided it by all legitimate and lawful means. Paul was steadfast, not passive or fatalistic. Well, let me just finish by a few words for you to take home. Are you personally under trial? Are you under trial? Is your faith being tested? Then rest assured, then rest assured that God never wastes your afflictions, but uses them all to create steadfastness in you, to increase your trusting and your obeying. Whatever your trial might be at this present moment, don't ever, don't ever Give in to sin. Learn that waiting in difficult circumstances is better than seeking to escape them or to deal with our difficult afflictions through sinful means. In your trial, learn the importance of keeping a clear conscience in your life before God and before others. Few other things are a stronger pillars for steadfastness under trial than to keep a clear conscience. And learn to be proactive in your trusting and your obeying God under afflictions. Don't just sit there waiting for the miracle to take place. Do what you must. Stay the course. Pursue what is good. And as you do, don't forget the one who trusted and obeyed his father all the way to his very death on a cross. Jesus was left to die on the cross under false charges and unfair treatment. 
He could have called myriads of angels to come down to his rescue. He had the power and he had the right to step down from that cross, but he did not. He remained until his life left him. Why? For us. For our redemption. For our forgiveness. For our hope. Therefore, Paul prays for the Thessalonians, may the Lord direct your heart to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ, 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. That's an amazing prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Thessalonians. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Consider him in your afflictions. Consider him who was steadfast under his afflictions for your sake. And Paul says, do likewise. So what is the lesson for us? Very simple. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. And we know that ultimately we look to Christ Jesus, for he is our only Savior. He is our only Lord. He's the one who died sacrificially for us as an atonement for our sins and rose again. But we also look to the example of the Apostle Paul. And we thank you for in the Apostle Paul, who was just like us, he remains steadfast. And so help us to go and do likewise. I pray for those among us who are under tremendous trials and tribulations and afflictions. I pray that you will take what we have heard. I pray that you will take what we have heard about Paul and his example and apply it to each one of us, to our own specific circumstances, and that you will help us, Lord, to remember that when we are under trials, you are working in us steadfastness. And so we pray for these things. Help us to be ultimately like the Lord Jesus. And these things we pray in his strong name. Amen.